Hi, food people. It's Don Davis here. And today I'm taking over the podcast to talk to the James Beard award-winning chef, educator, activist, and writer, Bryant Terry, about his life spreading the gospel of healthy, delicious soul food and his new book titled Black Food, which we excerpted in our September issue. So welcome to Food People. Thank you for having me, Don. Before we hop into your new book and your activist work and your journey into vegan food, I wanted to know where your love of food and your love of exploring identity through food came from. You know, all these things came from my family. Growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, with family who had roots in rural Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas, many of the things that I write about and I talk about, I often say that I'm simply sharing the lessons that I learned growing up. All of my grandparents, when they came to the city, uh, Memphis, they brought with them that agrarian knowledge, that connection to the land, that desire to produce their own food. My maternal grandmother had kitchen garden and practically a mini orchard in her backyard. Pear trees, mm. plum trees, peach trees, nectarine trees. My paternal grandfather, what he had was actually more than a garden. It was an urban farm because every bit of available space was being used to produce food. It was funny because this was when satellite TVs were a thing. And so he had this huge satellite in his backyard, but surrounding it were all these dark leafy greens, collards, mustards, turnips, kale. I love the idea of your grandfather, you know, with his satellite TV watching the news <laughs> or watching football with like a leafy green, you know, all the superfoods growing around him, mm -hmm. you know, providing for his family and for neighbors. And then I think also about your work as an activist, and I'm, I'm wondering if some of that, even if you unconsciously saw what was possible and what happens if people like you don't intervene or try to reconnect people. Well, yeah, it's interesting because my work around food justice activism started when I was living in New York City, and it was a stark contrast. Growing up in Tennessee, there was space to grow food, and so... I recognize that these young people were being deprived of something that I took for granted as a child. My grandfather didn't talk about, I'm teaching you about the seat-to-table yeah. cycle. <laughs> they didn't even talk about the practices that they had as something that was special. You know, we're growing our local, seasonal, organic garden in the back. Right. It's interesting because when I think about some of the conversations we had, he was very adamant that he didn't want to spray his food with any chemical pesticides. And so he had these, for all intents and purposes, sustainable and organic techniques that he had learned growing up on a farm. It was just the way that they lived, the way that they survived. They had so much surplus that my grandfather would give it away to people at the church, to neighbors. And that was just one of those things early on that really taught me that it's important for us to be abundant as individuals and for us to have a full cup because from there, we can share that abundance and we can pour it into others. And so I'm not about this romanticizing suffering or <laughs> poverty. Like we, right. we all should be whole and abundant. I think we have the name for your next book. It should be called Abundance. Hey, <laughs> I love it. And I, I also love this idea of our elders having so much that now has become trendy, if you will. I remember 
going on and on about kale. And my mom's like, those are just like greens <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> polenta. Oh, that's just like cornbread. And this idea of farm to table, that's what our people and many, many people who've moved from urban areas. But I just want to step back for one second, Don, and I'm really glad that you mentioned this reality. But early on, you know, it's interesting because so often the stories that were being told, the people that were being interviewed about these type of practices that wasn't anything special, you know, from urban gardening to having a practice of canning and pickling and preserving food for the leaner months. I used to get so frustrated because so often I would see these articles in magazines and newspapers, and then they would focus on most often pretty well-educated white women and white men, and and then I'd pop up in, in those stories. <laughs> and, you know, I just feel like these are things that I would love for there to me more coverage and talks to these elders. I mean, these are the people from whom I would argue we should be at their knee, taking notes, recording, having conversations so that we can capture that knowledge before they pass on. 100%. I couldn't agree more. The practices, the knowledge, we need to learn from it, particularly now where we're at this crossroads. Mm -hmm. You obviously brought the book together, but you also have a few recipes in the book itself, a few of which we excerpt in Bon Appetit, but I'm interested in the Dirty South hot tamales. Where do they come from and who made these for you first? Can you paint that picture for us? They come from the Dirty South. <laughs> so <laughs> one of my fondest childhood memories is going with my dad to visit the quote unquote tamale man. And it was this older brother who had his rolling heated food cart that he would set outside of the Crystal Palace skating rink, which was one of the popular skating rinks for young people at the time in Memphis. So we would go over and there was always a line and we would get some and we'd take some back to my mom and sister, but I would love having that little moment where my dad and I would like split one of the tamales and we'd sit near the the cart or sometimes we'd go back to the car and eat it. And it was just a cool thing that we did. And they were like oily and fatty, unctuous and just delicious. I think, you know, they had some had beef mm. and some had pork. And it was just one of those things where it was just soul satisfying. Whenever I had a bite, I didn't even know what soul satisfying is, but I know that when I had a bite, I just <laughs> was full on all levels. I really wanted to create a version of the tamales that I grew up eating. And I wanted to make it plant-based. So I used jackfruit instead of pork or beef and this really delicious cilantro sauce that brightens them up. And they're just great. And I want to give respect to my comrade and colleague, Karina Rivera, who's actually a Mexican, and we developed that recipe together. And I'm just glad that I get a chance to share a part of my family's history and share this history that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Tell me about jackfruit. I found that interesting that that was the substitute, and you go into it a little bit in the book, but tell our listeners how you arrived at jackfruit as kind of the substitute for the meat-filled patties that you grew up with. So interestingly, I've never actually created a recipe with jackfruit until this one. And this was the first time that I actually felt like it made sense. And I wanted it to have that texture that I experienced when I was eating those hot tamales growing up. And so I, I tested it a few times and it, it, it worked. And it's not the same thing as beef or pork, but I, I say it's as satisfying and it gives me that sense of fulfillment that I, I feel like I, I had when I used to eat those when I was growing up. So it's all good. Hooray for jackfruit. 
you talked about eating tamales with your dad and about your grandparents growing all kinds of fruit and vegetables. What other kind of specific food memories do you have of what was cooking on the stove with all this delicious food growing just outside? Do you, mm-hmm. you know, any particular fun memory? But I, I would say in terms of like cooking, my interest in cooking actually came from spending time with my maternal grandmother. And the memory that's at the front of my mind is her cupboard. She kept this cupboard in her kitchen that was about six feet tall and a foot deep crowded with glass jars full of preserves, pickle pears, peaches, carrots, green beans, figs, blackberry jam, sauerkraut, and her not-to-be-forgotten chow chow, which is this southern specialty. It's a relish made of cabbage, peppers, onions that are chopped finely and cooked for about five hours. And then they're used to add a little bit of heat and some acid to leafy green dishes. People would often eat them with collard greens or mustard to turnips. It's funny because I think when people hear slow food, they, right. in the popular imagination, or at least in the foodie world, people automatically think about Italy and the movement started Italy by- Italy and Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but- You know, I got to remind people, Black folks have been doing slow food cooking since the beginning of time. When my grandmother would spend all day Saturday preparing for Sunday supper, that's slow food cooking. Like, let's be clear. That's slow food. (laughs) The two dishes that I think about often are the cornbread that she would make, and she would fold pecans into the cornbread, Mm. which was just, no one else did that. And it just tasted so delicious, like the nuttiness of those pecans that she toasted. And the other was her chicken and dumplings. Oh my God. I used to love this woman's (laughs) chicken and dumplings. That was one of the tasks she would give me sometimes. She formed the dumplings. She would let me gently drop them into the stew so that they could cook. So um, big up to my dear, my maternal grandmother. Uh, you had a sound in your voice like, ooh, those chicken and dumplings to going <laughs> vegan. So I want to know about that, that journey. I want to know how you get from that, you know, real deep longing to not doing it at all. We we, we could spend a but, whole podcast on that journey, Don. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I want to ask a little bit about the book first. Let's talk a little bit about Black Food. It is your fifth book, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Your previous books have really focused on a kind of vegan food profile. And this time you invited, while you are the editor of the book, you in fact invited contributors from all over the diaspora Mm -hmm. to talk about what inspires them, to write about what inspires them and provide a recipe, not all vegan. What I really love about the book is food doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in conjunction with community. It happens in conjunction with art and is related to how we emotionally feel. And so there are some kind of moving pieces and recollections. So it is not a traditional cookbook, though it is full of how many recipes does it have? Over 75 recipes. So over 75 recipes. It definitely is a cookbook. I think you got it right in terms of it being read and enjoyed in a number of ways. You know, we're going to talk about some of the recipes in the book. There's a pound cake that we feature in our Bon Appetit, and the reader reviews are already so stellar and so high. I'm excited about that. Yes. You have geographical diversity with the Somali lamb stew. You have a, I remember some Jamaican patty recipes. Oh, yes, yes. And then another recipe that's been very popular on Bon Appetit is the sweet potato grits. 
I want to talk a little bit about the sweet potato grits. If I were to paraphrase, Edna Lewis said we should leave grits alone. And yet, Kia Damon, who contributed the recipe to the book and also to the Bon Appetit feature, put sweet potatoes and chicken stock in them. She totally changed it up. So where do you come out on that? Leave grits alone or play with them a little bit? No, I'm not into this purity. I I mean, enough respect to Edna Lewis. Throughout my body of work, I've looked at recipe writing as collage and this idea that I need to be presenting recipes in this kind of unadulterated, pure fashion. I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. But I love Kia's approach. I know there are people who are going to be critical of that. I know that there are people who feel like they want what they want. But I think my approach has always been about pushing people's boundaries and or pushing people out of their comfort zone. But look, we got people arguing in the South over if grits should be sweet or savory. So there are always going to be these cultural mm-hmm. battles about, you know, the way that things should uh, show up in the world. But enough respect to Kia Damon. And I- I'm just really excited about this young generation of chefs. Well, you'll be happy to know that it happens to be one of our most popular recipes. See? Boom. So. There it is. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break before getting back to Don's discussion with Brian and another recipe from his new book, Black Food. Welcome back to Food People and to Don's discussion with chef and author Brian Terry and his new book, Black Food. I love the cocoa orange fish that Nicole Taylor. Mm -hmm. So how did you and Nicole, what was the dialogue around that? Did she just submit it and you said yes? Yeah, I did want to ensure that because we were working under the logic that this book would have some animal products, and I wanted to ensure that there was a balance throughout the recipe. So yeah, Nicole and I talked. It was almost immediate. I was like, yeah, I want you to do like a protein dish and it could be something that you repurpose. And she's like, cocoa orange fish. And... I was like, sure. Like, I trust Nicole. I trust her with my life. It's got bene seeds, chili flakes, cocoa powder, some maple sugar, and caraway seeds. That's your rub. Yeah, you slice the oranges, you preheat the oven to 400, and prepare the fish, and then you drizzle them with some olive oil, and then cook it for about 8 to 12 minutes. And simplistic but packs a lot of flavor from what I've been told. And I love the image of that in the book. So big up Nicole Taylor. Well, I'm making it this weekend. It just looks like my kind of meal, particularly even midday, get a lot of flavor with mm. what, 10 ingredients or less. Mm-hmm. So so we're really excited about that one. When we put an issue together and we're going through a book like yours where every recipe looks so great, we sometimes have heated debates about which ones to include. But I will tell you the pound cake... Jocelyn Adams pound cake. Mm. Jocelyn Delk Adams. Yep, Jocelyn Delk Adams. Could I ask you what drew most of you all to the pound cake? Uh, it's just comfort food 101, <laughs> right? We all have memories of our mothers or our grandmothers making pound cake. You can eat it for breakfast. You can eat it for dessert. Actually, speaking of, of this whole notion about family, I was drawn, obviously, to the stories of you talking about you know, your grandmother letting you drop the dumplings in the stew. But what are the other stories from your book, Vegetable Kingdom? And you open it with stories 
about your daughters, mm-hmm. Zinzi and Mila. Mm-hmm. And I think there's one passage where you talk about preparing food and feeding them as obviously a fun thing to do, but also fueling and nurturing and energetically providing them with what they need so they can go do their thing. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a beautiful way to think about nourishing and feeding our children. Yeah. You know, we might overthink food in our house, but there's so many levels, you know, nourishing them on the physical level and nourishing them spiritually. And really helping them to know themselves. My wife is Chinese American, grew up in Berkeley. When we got together, we connected through cooking. And so it's it's very important for us to be intentional about having a few meals every week that are reflecting on our daughter's cultural heritage and helping them to know themselves through the food that they eat and put some black food in front of them, they're going to tear that up. You put some Asian food in front of them, they're going to tear that up too. Jack, I'm here for that. I, I, and if they need any help, I, I'm here for them. But you actually have your own imprint now at Random House, Mm -hmm. and this is going to be the first book. Congratulations on having your own imprint. That is a big deal. Thank you so much. Yes, Four Color Books is a vision that my literary agent, Danielle Svetkoff, and I have long had. We pitched Black Food. We got the deal for that. And soon after, and I just felt like... I wanted to take this opportunity to plant the pole and to actually have a position that allowed me to do more than just talk, but actually work to diversify food media and not just think about my own career as an author. So Black Food is our flagship project. We already acquired three books. We're going to be publishing Rahana Bizarret Martinez, who's a, a Oakland-based Afro-Latina chef. She's 17. The book will be out when she's 19. She's brilliant. She was a runner-up on Top Chef Junior. She starts at Chez Panisse and Ikoi in London and some of the best restaurants around the world, James Beard House. And she has a recipe in Black Food as well. She has a recipe and an essay in Black Food because the girl is brilliant. And we just acquired a new book, which I'm super stoked about. We are going to be doing the Scar's Pizza book. So Scar Pimentel, who's a Pizza Olo in New York City has a place on the Lower East Side. We're going to be publishing his book. And I'm so excited about that. Congratulations. You know, I know a thing about books. So uh, if you ever have any questions, you know where to find me. I I will be emailing you. Trust me. (laughs) Well, we're thrilled to talk to you today about Four Color, your new imprint, about Black Food, the book and about your journey, your family history. Thank you for joining us, Bryant. Well, I was going to say thank you, obviously, for having me on. And thank you so much, Don, for the support that you've shown me. You know, we, I've obviously knew about you and heard about you from a number of people, but we hadn't met. And I, I just have to say the way that you have been supportive of Black Food since the beginning, just feeling, you know, whatever, just a spiritual support, like you just fist in the air, like I'm proud of you support. But then, um, <laughs> you know, giving us that package inside of Bon Appetit, I just can't even tell you just how grateful I am. So thank you. Thank you to our special guest, Bryant Terry, for joining the show today. You can find his new book, Black Food, in bookstores now and online wherever you get your books. And while you're looking it up, be sure to give Bryant a follow on Instagram by simply typing his name, Bryant Terry. You can also find a few of the recipes mentioned in this episode in our show notes and on bonappetit.com. 
If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps keep us food people employed. And you can follow Bon Appetit on Instagram at Bon Appetit Mag and on Twitter at Bon Appetit. Food People is produced by Bon Appetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Madison Lusby is our production manager. And Morgan Foose and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty, and the music is by DJ Newmark. June Kim and I provide editorial direction for the series. Special thanks to Matt Sav, Nico Steele, and Julie Shen. I'm Amanda Shapiro, and I'll be back hosting next week. See you then. Yeah.